a little town in Bethlehem. It was written in 19, or, or, it was written in 1868 by an Episcopalian priest who, in 1865, visited Bethlehem and was inspired by his time there in, and what was then, what is still now, and what was in the time of Jesus' birth. A relatively small village. This morning I want to begin, rather I want to continue what I started last year at this time. I want to talk to you for the next few weeks on the subject of Christmas carols. O little town of Bethlehem. O little town of Bethlehem. In Jesus' day, Bethlehem was probably 300 to no more than 1,000 people. At the same time, Jerusalem, a mere six miles away, had a population of over 90,000. It's easy to understand why it would be called a little town of Bethlehem and why Micah, in his prophetic statement in about 700 B.C., would say, Bethlehem, though you're considered to be very small. I want to challenge you with this. Jesus declared to his disciples and, and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit declares to us as well that you didn't choose me, but I chose you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. God, I thank you this morning for the very real truth that each one of us are chosen. You know us by name. You knew us before we were fashioned in our mother's womb, and you loved us. And you love us still. You have a destiny that you have set in place for each one of us. You have a, a desired path, a preferred path for each one of us. And it is a path that is a, a destiny that, that prospers us, that doesn't harm us. It's, it's a destiny that gives us a, a future and a hope. God, I thank you for the reality today that each one of us are chosen and loved. I pray, God, that that truth, that it would resonate in our hearts and in our minds, that it would resonate at the depth of our soul this morning. We commit these things to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This time of year has always been a it's always been a pretty special time for, for my family. And, and here's what I have found. I have found this, that, that the holidays are oftentimes a big deal when you come from a big family. Why? Because when you get together, it's quite the event. Growing up, we would always spend Thanksgiving at my grandparents' house, right, over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. That was pretty much uh, my experience uh, growing up, although we didn't go in a sleigh, we went in, a, in an American Rambler station wagon. I guess we did go in a sleigh. And uh, if you ever ridden in an American Rambler station wagon, you would understand why I uh, make that statement. 
And, and we would go uh, and, and spend time at, at Grandma's house, and that was Thanksgiving. Christmas, everyone came to our house. And, and whether it was Thanksgiving or Christmas, because I was the 12th of 13 children, I always ended up in the same place, at the kids' table. At the kids' table. And, and because our family was so large, there wasn't simply two tables. There was a, a series of tables. There was the adult table, the big kids' table, and the kids' table. The adult table. The adult table was the dining room table. Now, that was the ultimate. The big kids' table was the kitchen table. The kids' table was that nasty card table that had been drugged out of the basement or out of the attic. Right? Kind of rickety, a little dangerous. And, and you, you sat on those metal chairs that if, you, if your grandmother was in Iowa, like mine, come Thanksgiving, those chairs were, let's just say they were brisk. And if you're one of the younger kids, you don't even get a center spot at the kids' table. You're at the corner, and so you're dealing with that very dangerous pole right there. I dreamed. I longed for that opportunity to graduate from the kids' table to the big kids' table. Ultimately, to make it, oh, oh, glory be to God, to make it to the adult table. As an adult, you know what I long for? You know what I wish for now? I'd love to be back that kid's table. Because you know what I discovered? I discovered this. The feelings and the challenges that I dealt with at the kids' table didn't disappear at the big kids' table or at the adult table. Insecurity. Anxiety. I, I'm insecure about different things as an adult than I was as a child. But I still deal with it. O little town of Bethlehem, O little boy, O little man. It's something that we all deal with. Even though they tell us that we have become a, a very narcissistic society, that we are a, a narcissistic generation, we're told that Technology and, and social media are giving us an inflated sense of ourselves. But even in the midst of that, most of us don't walk around with feelings like we're all that great. In fact, there's an underlying emotion that overwhelmingly 
shapes our self-influence and and really has a big impact on our behavior. It's, it's, this, it's this issue of insecurity. If you could enter the minds of the people that you're around this morning, even the ones that would seem to be the most narcissistic, here's what you'll find. You're likely to encounter ceaseless waves of insecurity. In fact, a recent survey found this. It found that 60% of women deal with hurtful, critical thoughts of themselves on a daily basis. 60% of women deal with hurtful, critical thoughts of themselves on a daily basis. Now, most of the men in the room would say, I've been around women, that doesn't, doesn't surprise me. I see them talking about it all the time. Men, before you're judgmental, let me ask you to pause. Because 67% of men have the same thoughts, feelings, emotions. We, we simply don't express them. We simply eternalize them. Because we have what they call this critical inner voice, this critical inner voice. And, and it affects us. It affects us with how we view ourselves personally. It affects how we function relationally. It even affects us in areas of employment, this critical inner voice. Science has a hard time really quantifying it. They have a hard time explaining it. We understand it. Those of us of faith understand it because James says this, we have this battle that goes on within us. The Apostle Paul talks about the issue of the challenge between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh and the spirit. And, and there's this, this war that happens within us. And there's this voice, isn't it, that, that speaks to us. Part of it is profoundly spiritual. Part of it is deeply relational. And we're influenced. From, from, from the time we were a small child, we're influenced. And, and it's amazing how the different influences impact us and impact our sense of self-worth and our feelings of insecurity. Negative statements that were spoken over us as children that are woven through our understanding and our perceptions today. You know, it's interesting. It doesn't even have to be statements that were spoken over us. Our critical inner voice is deeply impacted by statements that we saw others speak over themselves as we were, as we were children. If you grew up in a home where your mother was constantly critical of herself or dad was constantly critical of mom or critical of himself, that affects your critical inner voice. The mom standing in front of the mirror and going, oh, this makes me look so fat. The father lamenting at the dinner table, man, I don't understand why I can't catch a break in life. It seems like I'm such a loser. Even though those words weren't spoken over you as a child, they influenced you. 
It didn't even have to be negative statements, exaggerated praise. Exaggerated praise where, where your parents tried to speak these positive words over you and you understood that they didn't relate to what was going on in your life. And because this exaggerated praise was spoken over you and you knew you could not live up to what was said about you, created this pressure, this unintended pressure And so even though when you walk into church, you say, praise the Lord, how are you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored. Inside, you're, you're battling. And if you're honest, at times, you're struggling. It, it, it comes out in a, in, a, in a number of different ways, right? As we get older, the, these, these, these thoughts, these, these attitudes... And when we buy into crazy stuff, here's some of the things that, that people will, will speak over themselves throughout the day. You're, you're not very smart. You're unattractive. You're not, and here's what's interesting. Here's, here's our perception, is that somehow we're different. And not in a positive way, but we're, we're different in a negative way. You, you'll never get anything right. No one will ever love you. You're, you're a loser. You, you're, you're, you'll, you'll, you won't make good friends. What's the point in even trying? These negative thoughts, these negative waves, they, they come over us at work. You, you don't really know what you're doing. And, and it's interesting that these things will, will, will come over you, and even though they don't make sense, you still have to deal with them. Every... Every time in the, in the four churches now that I have served as the lead pastor, every time I have stepped into that ministry assignment, the first few days, I have to push back against the feelings of inadequacy and feeling like, oh my goodness, there's no way that I can ever do this job. No way. I'm going to fail so miserably. It's, it's, it's human nature. You should just put this off tomorrow. No one appreciates you. You better get this perfect or you're going to be fired. No one really likes you here. When are you going to get a real job? There's no reason to look for a real job because why would anyone hire you? In relationships, don't get too hooked on her because she's going to hurt you just like the rest. He doesn't really care about you. She's too good for you. You're better off on your own. As soon as she gets to know you, she will reject you. In fact, you've got to be in control. It's your fault if he gets upset. Don't be too vulnerable or you'll wind up getting hurt. insecurity hit after hit after hit this this critical inner voice that speaks to us and even though 
even though a decent amount of the time we understand that it's not true, it still has an impact. I want to focus on, on three lies this morning. Three lies. And this, and this challenge and understanding of identity. And this desire to be where God wants us to be. And, and, to, and to see ourselves as he sees us. I want to talk about three lies that, that keep us from doing that. And, and when, I, when I think about dealing with issues of insignificance, there's, there's a story in Scripture that, that really, I think, that speaks of this so loudly. And it's the story of Moses and the, and the children of Israel as they're, as they're coming out of bondage in Egypt. Now, here's what Israel knows. And not just Israel, here's what Moses specifically knows. That Israel is God's chosen race, God's chosen people, chosen. And yet, in the midst of that, though it doesn't make sense, though it cannot be reconciled intellectually, there's still this feeling of, I'm not good enough. I'm not valued enough right? Moses, it's obvious that he has a life of destiny. The first 40 years of Moses' life, he lives in the palace of Pharaoh. Well-educated, well-taken-care-of, lives this amazing life because he attempts to defend a slave that's being beaten, and he ends up killing an Egyptian. He goes on the run. And even on the run, it's obvious that God's favor is upon him. Right? The first 40 years of Moses' life, he spends living in the palace. The second 40 years of his life, he spends as a shepherd in the plains of Midian. But even in that, God's blessing him and prospering him in everything that he does. And after 40 years of living as a shepherd in the, in the plains of Midian, He's out there, and he sees this burning bush, this bush that is on fire that is not being consumed. And what happens? He, out of curiosity, he goes up to the bush, and the bush begins talking to him. Now, in that moment, I'm going to freak out. Just a little bit. Well, I'm going to be puzzled by the burning bush that isn't consumed. I mean, that's going, to, that's going to captivate me already. But when the burning bush starts talking to me, take off your sandals. Because where you're standing is holy ground. I'm not so sure I'm going to take off my sandals at that point. I'm not, sure, no, I'm not so sure I'm not running in the opposite direction at that point. Right? But Moses does it. He, he takes off his sandals. And God begins to speak to him and says, Moses, I have seen the plight of my people, and it is time for their deliverance. I'm sending you to Egypt to be my spokesperson. I'm sending you as the deliverer. And what is, what is Moses' response? But, but who am I that I should go? 
Who am I? That's a universal question, isn't it? God, who am I that that I should be in the role that you have me in? Who am I that that I should have this responsibility of parenting? Who am I, God, that that I should be in a a place of influence in my workplace? Who am I, oh God, that, that I can talk to my neighbors, my classmates, my coworkers, my friends, even my family about the reality of who you are? Who am I, God? If you... If you struggle with that feeling of value, know this, you're not alone. So many significant people woven throughout history, Old Testament history and New Testament history, dealt with that same issue, dealt with that same challenge, had to get over that same hurdle. Not just people in history, so many people in this room deal with that exact same thing. But who am I? Why? Because We've bought into the misperceptions that we've had about ourselves. We've bought into the negative things that people have spoken over us. And we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See, Jesus' statement about you is true. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Before you were fashioned in your mother's womb, God says, I knew you and chose you. Well, well, that's just true. That's not true for everybody. I know that says it in the Bible, but that's not true for everybody. It's not true for me because I'm different. Isn't it interesting that the enemy would love for you to believe that lie, to embrace that lie? That somehow you're different than everybody else and you're different in a negative way. Make no mistake, friends, God knows you. He knows your every breath. Yes, but what I have done... Hogwash. You might want to write that down. If you're a note taker, hogwash. H-O-G-W-A-S-H. Hogwash. Because God's not surprised by any negative thing you do. He's not. God knows the end from the beginning. God is timeless. And so because God knows the end from the beginning, God chose you knowing every stupid thing you would do. So when you fall... When you fail, God's not surprised by that. He knows what you're going to do, and He loves you still. And loves you unconditionally, and chooses you unconditionally. And yet, we'll we'll buy into this lie that, that I'm not valued enough. Micah, Micah wrote this in Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient of times. But you, Bethlehem Ephrath, though you are small, a little town of Bethlehem. Micah wrote this some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. He told of the significance of this little town of Bethlehem. 
Hold on. Bethlehem wasn't significant just because Jesus was born there. Oh, make no mistake, that is huge. But you need to ask yourself the question, why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Here's the reason why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Because Joseph went along with Mary to the town of Bethlehem because he was from the line and tribe of David. Two hundred and fifty years before Micah prophesied, David tended his father's flock in the fields outside of Bethlehem. The very fields the angels appeared before the shepherds. Now, how do we know it was the very fields? If you've ever been to Bethlehem, there's only one spot where there can be a field. Other, 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 other than that, it's just rocky, very rough terrain. Why was David tending his father's flocks in the hills outside Bethlehem? Because his father, Jesse, was born in Bethlehem. Why was Jesse born in Bethlehem? Because that's where Obed was from. Why was Obed from Bethlehem? Because that's where Obed's mother, Ruth, met Obed's father, Boaz. That's where Ruth, a not an Israelite, but a Moabite, was gleaning after the harvesters and was first introduced to this man who became her kinsman redeemer. Bethlehem was the place of the kinsman redeemer a thousand years before Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, was even born. Bethlehem's significance was from the foundation of the world. And your significance, friend, your significance comes before you're even born. You did not choose me. I chose you, the Word of God declares, you're chosen. Bethlehem would be considered small if you're playing the comparison game. Boy, that's what we get sucked into a lot, don't we? We get sucked into this comparison game. And we compare ourselves. Right? Well, I have this, but she has. I thought my wedding ring was nice until I saw hers. I was pretty excited about my car when I drove it away from the dealership until I pulled into the driveway and saw what the neighbor had just got. Man, last Friday I got a 
last Black Friday, I got a 65-inch TV, and now they've got 70-inch TVs on sale. It's embarrassing that my TV is only 65 inches. How can I live with myself? That comparison game. We get sucked into it. And we start believing this lie that, that we're not valued enough. And all too often, we, we sell ourselves off cheap. And what happens is these feelings of inferiority, they undermine our success. Our, our doubts, they, they, rob our, they rob us of our confidence. And, and, and that doubt grows to fear. And then fear paralyzes us, keeps us from taking action. Because we think, I'm not valued enough. And, and, and that, that feeling of that we're not valued enough, what we'll do is this. We'll then project that onto God and think God is not big enough. Right? So when God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I'm sending you as the deliverer to, 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 to bring my people out of bondage. Moses says, who am I? And, and, God, and, and God's response is this. He says, I am with you. And Moses' response is, well, who are you? God, if, if, if the fact that you're sending me is it's fine, but when they ask, well, who is this God that sends you? Who, who are you? It wasn't just Moses that, that questions whether or not God is big enough, right? The, the children of Israel, they, they, they go through all of the different plagues. God then gives them deliverance. And this nation makes its way to the edge of the Red Sea. And here comes Pharaoh and his army behind them. And they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Understand this. The children of Israel in captivity in Egypt, what they talked about over and over again, what they talked about night after night after night, was the fact that a deliverer would come. That God hadn't forgotten about them. That God hadn't abandoned them. And then Moses finally shows up. They've talked about this. They've believed in it. They know that it's their destiny. And in that moment, in the midst of embracing their destiny, in that moment that they face for the first time adversity, what do they do? They refer back to their, their old negative ways. Doubting who they are and even doubting who God is. And doubting his promises. And here's what I know. Here's what happens. So we'll come to church, we'll, we'll hear a message like this, and we go, Woo, yeah, God, okay, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to live my life with purpose. I'm going to live my life with destiny. God, I'm trusting in you. God, I know what you've spoken over me. And then what happens is we walk out underneath these exit signs, we go out into the real world, and somebody speaks something negative about us, and we go, Ho! Oh! Maybe I'm not all that. And God, maybe you're not all that. God, I'm not questioning your ability, but here's what I'm questioning. I'm questioning whether or not you're 
actively involved in my life personally. There's something about me, God, there's something different about me that disqualifies me from your protection, from your provision, from your providential hand. And again, friend, the focus is on you instead of on God. And somehow, we become so focused on ourselves that it fuels our insecurity and it creates this distance between us and God. And we start questioning either God's existence, God's ability, or God's involvement. I doubt that God is there, or I doubt that God is capable, or I have no problem with God being capable, but I'm not so sure that he is capable for me. Because it all starts with us wondering whether we're valued enough, and then we wonder if God is big enough, and that leads us to the third lie, that God doesn't care enough. That God doesn't care enough. That he simply is watching us from a distance. Well, I want you to know this, that God has chosen you. And what God will do is God will consistently, consistently, consistently confirm it. Let's talk about Bethlehem. I I mentioned this a few moments ago. In Micah 5, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, but you, Bethlehem Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times written 250 years after David, 700 years before Jesus. I love the fact that God consistently throughout history has moved powerfully through situations, individuals, and groups that if you looked at it through the natural eye, you would go, I don't think so. God has over and over and over again demonstrated his might, and not just his might, but his compassion and love by working through underdogs. Think of the story of Gideon. You have too many. Really? God, do you understand how many Philistines there are? Do you understand how many Israelites we have? I've got just a a few thousand men here, God, and they are as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Yeah, it's still too many. It's still too many. They're going to take credit themselves, and it's going to mess them up. Okay, you're good now. 300? Really? I'm good, God? 300? Why? Was it because God's an egomaniac? No, it was because God understands that we have this issue. Part of the sinful nature is we have this issue of dealing with inadequacy, insecurity, and self-thought, self-destructive, self-critical thoughts. Okay, It's that war that wages within us. It's the reason why David would say, Old Testament, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If David is praying, renew a right spirit within me, what is he telling you? He's got a wrong spirit. 
in this spiritual battle between the flesh and the spirit, it has been happening since the days of the garden. And mankind has been dealing with this issue of of value and insecurity since the days of Adam and Eve. Right? What was original sin? Original sin, a story that's twisted and convoluted, and I believe the fact that this story is told so incorrectly so often is actually a trap that the enemy likes to give because it prevents us from dealing with this issue in our life. Right? When most people talk about Adam and Eve in the garden, here's what they talk about. Adam and Eve were tempted by the apple. It wasn't the apple. Adam and Eve were tempted by the apple, and, you know, man, it just looked so good, and they just couldn't resist temptation because who can resist temptation? Lie. What happened in the garden? Adam and Eve are in the garden, and Satan comes in the form of a serpent in the cool of the day and says this, what did God say to you? Right? And he comes with the scheme of the question. The scheme of the question, and realize this, that the vast majority of the time that Satan is going to speak, that his demonic influence is going to speak into your day, he's not going to say, you're stupid. Here's what he's going to say. Do you really know how to do that? Because if somebody speaks something over it over us, we can go, I don't really accept that. But if I can get you to speak it over yourself, oh, it's real easy for you to embrace it. What did God say to you? Did he say that you ate from that tree? Or what did God say to you? Well, if we eat from the tree, we'll die. Well, that's not, hmm, that's not really true. In fact, what God's trying to do is God's trying to keep you down. If you eat from that tree, you'll become like him. Wow. So Adam and Eve were faced in that moment. Maybe God doesn't really love us. Maybe God isn't really looking out for our best interests. Maybe maybe we're not what we thought we were. Maybe this relationship isn't what we thought it would be. And it's that same battle, that, that battle that mankind dealt with in the garden when sin was born. We, we deal with that same issue today. It's insidious. And it's very effective. Look at the world around you. Look at the narcissistic tendencies coupled with massive feelings of inadequacy and insecurity and the crazy things that we as mankind do as a result. It's Satan's best lie. That this connection with God isn't what you think it is. But God consistently confirms the fact that you're chosen. Look look, look what he does with Bethlehem, right? When King Herod heard this, it's when, when the Magi came to see Herod, and they said, "Um, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And Herod goes, oh, wait a minute. I'm the king of the Jews. You mean somebody else has been born king of the Jews, and this somehow has been supernaturally revealed to you? I don't like this. Right? So, So when he heard this, he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod 
king of the Jews has these wise men come from the east and they say, we understand somebody who is king of the Jews has been born. We want to worship him. Where's he at? Herod calls his, all of his prophets, his seers, all these people that should know, right? The intelligent people, those who know scripture and those who have the ability to, to super, somehow supernaturally see things. And he says, what's the deal? Now, most people in that role, you would think that the, their first inclination would be go, go, oh, you know what, Herod, this is nothing you have to worry about because trust me, that's, that's really, that's, no, no, no. But even in that situation, what do they do? They said, oh, yeah, it was recorded, Old Testament prophecy, absolutely. It, the, the Christ child, okay, the Messiah, the deliverer, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Why? Because understand this. God will confirm over and over and over again. He will confirm your value. Why is it that we don't understand this? Why, don't we, why, don't, why is it that we don't appreciate it? It's because so often what we're doing is we're allowing so many of these other voices into our life that we can't hear the voice of God. And I think when it comes to competing voices, I think Christians are the worst. I really do. I think that's the reason why there's so much issues, why there's so much um, 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 hip hypocrisy, why there's so much criticism. I, I think Christians are some of the big biggest gossips in the world and, and the biggest fighters in the world. And all this stuff that's done in the name of religion Because rather than being obedient to the voice of God and rather than living our life consistent with what He speaks over us, we buy into these, these lies, these lies that come from the enemy, the lies that actually that are generated from us. You know, most of the junk in my life that affects me is not the devil talking to me. It's stuff I make up in my own head. I'm probably the only one here that has that difficulty. And, and thank you for, for joining me for my own little individual counseling session. But it's the truth. And what God does is this. He says, listen, I chose you. And I, I, I confirm that. And here's, here's what I love. I love the fact that God is a rewarder. And he rewards those who embrace this. Right? So, so when Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea, I think this is my favorite part of the whole, of the whole story. And by the way, so much of the, so much of the story of Jesus' birth is convoluted. You know, Jesus they get to the end, and, and there's no room for them in the end, so they're told, there's no room for you in the end, but you can go stay in the stable. Yeah, not so much. That word "n," the Greek word that is translated "n," it means, it, 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 the word is kataluma, and it, it means sleeping chamber. And, and in the homes in that day, there was an upper sleeping chamber. And there was no room for them in the sleeping chamber 
So they stayed in the lower portion of the house, which is where you would have kept your stuff. And also, if the weather was real bad, you'd even bring your livestock in. There was no room for them in the Cataluma. Joseph and Mary more than likely stayed with family. And they more than likely stayed for a long period of time. I know that flies in the face of some of the traditions that you've seen and the cool stuff you've seen happen on the church stage. But check out your Bible and, and, and check out that word. You'll find that this is true. Many of the critics say, one of the, one of the criticisms of, the, of the, the story of Jesus' birth is that Joseph would not have taken Mary on such a long journey when she was pregnant with child because, as you know, Jesus was born when they, the, the, the night they arrived in Bethlehem because that's the way every Christmas pageant in church has been, has been told, right? There's nothing in the Bible that says that Jesus was born when they arrived in Bethlehem. It says while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. So how long before Mary gave birth did they arrive in Bethlehem? Scripture doesn't tell us that. And more than likely, they arrived some time. And the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, if it was just a man traveling, would have been about two days' journey. A man traveling with a pregnant wife would have been about four days' journey. And even though the journey would have been a little bit challenging, if you're a young pregnant woman, are you going to stay behind while your husband is going a few days away, are you going to make the trip with him? It's amazing what happens when you set tradition aside and, 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 and you stop listening to critics that only look at a part of the information and you look at the whole story. Friends, this story makes sense. And there were in that same vicinity. There were in that same field shepherds watching over their flocks by night. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Right? And their initial response was, whoa! They were very much afraid. Linus would tell you this in the Charlie Brown Christmas, and they were sore afraid. And what did the angel say? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be for all, to peop all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And in that moment, The shepherds don't give in to this feeling of, who am I? Who am I that I should see the Messiah at his birth? They don't buy in to the lie that God certainly wouldn't give me this opportunity because God doesn't care enough. No, here's what happens. In that moment, they go, Let's go see. Why? Because at that moment, their focus isn't on who they are. They're not buying into this lie that, oh, I'm just a dirty shepherd. I, I'm, I live this life 
unclean, right? Because they're taking care of these animals. They're taking care of these animals outside of the city because their job is a job that causes them to be unclean. They're never allowed to go to anything that's significant. And to be at the birth of a child as somebody who is unclean? Come on. They're going to believe the voice of angel. They're going to believe the messenger of God. They're going to believe the words of God instead of getting sucked in by their critical inner voice. Here's the question that I have for you today. Which voice are you going to listen to? Which voice are you going to listen to? Right now, one of the things that you're battling with is this feeling that I'm different. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but, but if I did, if I asked you to raise your hand right now, I want you to know this, that those who wouldn't raise their hand, or those, if they were honest, those who wouldn't raise their hand would be in the significant minority here. You know, when it comes to stuff like this, I'm different. I'm not, and I'm not different positively. I'm different negatively. I'm, I'm somehow, I'm somehow flawed. If the people around me knew everything about me, oh. so surely God wouldn't choose me. Father, I pray for a wonderful sense of your Holy Spirit in this room right now. 